Hello and welcome to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review of Books. I'm your host, Eric Newman, the Gender and Sexuality Editor at LARB, and I'm alone again in the studio today. But I have a wonderful conversation that uh, LARB Managing Editor, my usual co-host, Medea Ocher, and my other usual co-host, LARB Editor-at-Large, Kate Wolf, had with director Sandy Tan, whose marvelous new movie, Shirkers, is out now. So without further ado, let's get right to that conversation. And the next voices that you will hear will be director Sandy Tan, LARB Editor-at-Large, Kate Wolf, and LARB Managing Editor, Medea Ocher. We are happy to have Sandy Tan in the studio with us today. Sandy is the director of Shirkers, a recent documentary that is out on Netflix. Sandy Tan is a filmmaker, a novelist, and a former film critic. She was born in Singapore, where at the age of 19, she made a feature-length film called Shirkers. Shirkers is a road movie, a colorful, lush fairy tale about a murderous young girl traveling around Singapore with a suitcase, a nurse, an enormous dog, a young epileptic girl, and a little boy. It should have been a cult classic, except that the older American man who helped Sandy film Shirkers took the footage and disappeared. Sandy would not see a reel from her own film for another 20 years or so. Sandy recently made a documentary, also called Shirkers, to chronicle the making of that film, the disappearance of the footage, and how she eventually got it back. Sandy Tan, welcome to the show. Wow, that was really good. Thank was you. that accurate? That was really good. Oh, I'm so glad. <laughs> yeah, I don't travel around with a nurse, but you probably couldn't tell that from the footage. So it's my problem that I was being kind of vague in the clips that I chose to put in the film, but your description was really good. Oh, I'm so glad. It does seem like you kind of pick the nurse up at a certain point and then yeah. you ditch her. You know, yeah, kind of. I steal her daughter, who's right. the epileptic girl, and her dog. Yes. No, the dog doesn't travel with us, but it comes along sometimes. Okay. (laughs) Okay. It's very, it's, you know, it doesn't make a lot of sense. So maybe just, I gave a very, very brief introduction to this Mm -hmm. documentary that you made, but will you tell us, tell us at least some of the story (laughs) of the movie that you made when you were 19, Shirkers, and the documentary? Some of the story. Some of the story. Just Uh, the broad outline. Maybe like what the film was that you what made. What the film was. That I mean, was the, lost. the film was that. Like I played the 16-year-old killer named S. I wrote the script, by the way. It was the first draft. We shot the first draft. So let me rewind a little bit. I was, you know, out of high school. I was part of Singapore's first theater studies and drama program in high school. And me and Jasmine, who's the character in the film, my friend from high school, we went to the first ever 16-millimeter filmmaking class in Singapore after high school, waiting to go to college. And it was being run in art center in Singapore by a very strange American man named George Cardona. And of course, we had to be a part of this class. I was a complete film nerd. I wanted to make movies. I loved movies. There was no way I could make movies in Singapore, really, because nobody was making movies. And there was no, you know, it was like the 1990s, I guess. Video cameras weren't that common and certainly not film. So I... We took this class. We became part of this class and we became friends with George, you know, and he eventually became my best friend and mentor. And I wrote this script called Shirkers in which there was a lead character named S who goes around the island of Singapore, which is really, really tiny, looking for five people to kill (laughs) and take to the, the next world with her. You know, it was my way of kind of 
an excuse for a road trip, an excuse for making the small, sterile, boring, the most boring, smallest city in the world I could think of into the most mythic landscape mm-hmm. I could think of. To make it on par, I mean, it was a challenge, of course, to make it on par with the landscapes of Ben Fender's Paris, Texas, films like that, films I loved. So that was an experimental film on some level, but it was also going to be a showcase for all these, my friends from drama school, in terms of acting and production design and all kinds of things. And we pulled these people in working on the film for free. We shot for two and a half months on the streets of Singapore in 1992 when nobody else was doing this kind of thing. 100 locations, I think, and 100 extras. It was an enormous, gargantuan endeavor. I just want to jump in just because the film has so much and it's so fascinating. But something I think is really fascinating at least for me, was that I had no kind of basis for what Singapore as a country was like. I didn't realize how culturally diverse it was. And I think that's something you capture really well. So I'm just to back up a little bit. Yeah. So you're growing up in Singapore in the 70s and 80s. Was there any pre-existing film industry at the time? You know, what was the cultural scene like? Yeah, so nothing was going on in that part of the world, really. You know, maybe we had, in 1978, there was a film called They Call Her Cleopatra Wong, which is kind of a cult classic that Tarantino was obsessed with. And that was shot partly in Singapore and starred a Singaporean lead as Cleopatra Wong, a kind of kung fu kicking, globe trotting Interpol agent and getting into all sorts of hijinks. And she was my stepmom. I mean, Marie Lee, the woman who played the lead. So that was my only kind of real connection to film back then. And Singapore's real connection to film was basically that. And I guess into the 80s, I don't think anything was going on. Maybe there was one really bad kung fu movie. And then in the 90s, there was a really bad movie that we kind of referenced that was being shot just as we were going into like pre-production on Shirkers, I think, in 1991, just a year before us, I guess. It's called Medium Rare, and it's about a true story. It's based on the true story about a serial killer in Singapore. But this time, they had an American TV actor who was no good at all play the Singaporean serial killer. And it was kind of a mess. I don't think I really ever saw the movie, but I, because <laughs> it's been pulled from the internet. The director has removed his name. It's one of those legendary bad things that happened, and nobody wants to kind of admit ever happened. So... It's kind of the opposite of Shirkers, which might have been an interesting thing that actually happened and people wish had happened, but there was no trace of because the footage was stolen by an unreliable character. How were you getting films? I mean, what was your vehicle to see movies? It was extremely circuitous and difficult, and therefore it made film viewing much more attractive to me because things weren't easily accessible. So I remember writing to the Singapore Film Society when I was like 14 and just like bugging them to show movies like Blue Velvet, you know, movies I wanted to see. And then of course, like Keanu Reeves movies like River's Edge. I just met the president of the uh, Singapore Film Society again just last week when I was there. And I, I was remembering that I had written him you know, like hectoring letters when I was 14. And, you know, he kept some of them and I kept his replies to show these kinds of movies. And and then I realized, we realized that he was only 21 when he was running this film society. And I thought I was writing to a grown-up because he was always in a suit and tie and that was this boisterous kid. But he was only 21. I mean, this is like a very young place. People trying to do stuff, but it was very hard to come by films. So he would, you know, he would show the classics like Eight and a Half, a movie that I saw for the first time at the Singapore Film Society and was just boring enough to kind of let me have space to dream, you know what I mean? And which is important, and I think, when you're young and watching films. But anyway, so what it was, was 
films were very hard to come by. And I was reading about films and film comment, American film, places like that. This is, again, pre-internet, 1980s Singapore. So these became very precious commodities and you had to be very creative to get your products. So I, I had a cousin in Florida who had no interest in film, actually no interest in the arts, but nevertheless, she had parents with a membership at Blockbuster. So I taught her through diagrams, I think, how you hook up two VCRs together and how you can maybe, you know, rent some movies that I was interested in seeing and, and make me copies and send them across the oceans to me. I got her to do Blue Velvet. I remember this videotape that she made. You know, and back in those days, you could tape three movies in one two-hour tape if you tape them at triple speed. I think it was called like EP or something or extra play or something. And then, I mean, if you're old enough to remember the VCR, VHS era, this is what it was. On the one videotape, you could tape like three films. So I had her do like Blue Velvet, Angel Heart, and maybe I think it was Square Dance with Rob Lowe just to throw off the scent. So that it was a kid's <laughs> movie. I think it was Rob Lowe and Winona Ryder. And so she taped these things onto one VHS. She sent it to me and I... I watched these movies as if they were like beamed from a different galaxy because they were so fuzzy and full of static that they seemed almost like miraculous, you know, kind of religious signals or I don't know. They just seemed more magical. And when you have to view movies through that way, they suddenly become, they take on a different meaning, I think, or a different significance in your life. Within that context, within the context of getting, becoming obsessed with movies, mm-hmm. you also start a zine with your friend, who's also in the documentary, and you guys then go take this film class with this sort of mysterious American man named George. Yes. You become gradually more and more involved with George. Mm-hmm. And what do you think it was? I mean, there's some people in the documentary who venture what it is about him that make him compelling and he sort of becomes a central part of the story but what was it at the time about this person that you think drew you in so he was unlike any other grown-up in Singapore that you knew Singapore was filled with judgmental grown-ups I mean it was like straight-laced plays Boring, stultifying grown-ups who did not understand you and did not approve of what you were interested in and just wanted you to have good grades and were just scolding you and yelling at you all the time. And George was completely opposite of that. Plus, he was a very charismatic storyteller. I think he still is the best storyteller I ever met. And I think if he walked in this door and sat at this empty seat and was telling his stories, I think you would want him as your guest every week. This fellow was just supremely gifted. You know, he came from Latin America and he grew up and lived in New Orleans. I mean, he had a whole history of being in cities that were filled with raconteurs and he was a great one. So, you know, he came to Singapore where people weren't great raconteurs and he was a great listener and he was interested in all the things I was interested in that naturally I found an affinity there and he was a grown-up. That was very useful when you're a child or when you're a kid and that nobody would take you seriously. And it was very useful for me to have a grown-up accomplice, mm-hmm. shall we say. Like if you wanted to make a film, no one's going to give you free film or no one's going to trust you with anything. And this man had a car, he could drive, he had a grown-up facade and he was foreign and no one's going to challenge that. So that was the appeal of George. But beyond that, I think he was he was just so different from all the other grown-ups around us and he was interested in the movies I was interested in. It just made sense to just want to hang out with him. And ultimately, you have him as the director of Shirkers, this film that you were... How long were you in pre-production for Shirkers? I mean, how long was the process of deciding... It seems like George encouraged you to write a film. 
Murray. Yeah, I had written it without any encouragement because I, you know, was always writing movies and I was always writing letters and journals and whatnot in my head. And so this was something I wrote a little before and after when George and I took a road trip through the States. But it was percolating within me for a long time of wanting to catalog all these interesting places in Singapore vanishing before our eyes in the form of a road movie because we're both obsessed with road movies as well as a catalog of all these interesting characters that just throw them in. If I was going to be playing a character who was going around killing and auditioning people to kill, you're going to wind up meeting a lot of interesting people. So yeah, he encouraged me in that direction and it was... And then he became the director. He became the director by default. I mean, of course, it was vanity on his part because he wanted to be the director because he was a grown-up. Did he have an experience in film production at all? We had a little bit of experience, enough to teach a class in telling you what you... He was a cinematographer, basically. He's a very good DP, which is why the film is really well composed. The shots are really nice. He knows about lighting. He's a photographer and cinematographer, so he knows how cameras work. So he knew that, and he knew how sound recording worked. I guess the Nagra, the tape recorders, how they worked. In terms of the rest of it, like actual practical directing I think he was less experienced because he hadn't really made a film but you know that was beside the point because none of us had either and when you're talking about a place that was very innocent of experience you are much more likely to latch onto somebody who had a little bit of experience especially because they had seemed to have a vision and and seemed to have the passion that you need also very importantly and I shall say this again he was a grown-up he was a grown-up so that when we wanted to get free film or needed the assistance of Kodak and the film equipment houses and people to trust us, the bus companies. I mean, grown-ups, you know, grown-ups trust grown-ups. They weren't going to just like seat control and free stuff to a bunch of 18 and 19-year-old girls. Actually, just to follow up on that, what was the status of the other grown-ups in your life? You just said that this actress was your stepmother. Mm-hmm. What about your family? How were they involved? How- they were not involved. I mean, I was okay. very unsupervised. I completely advocate more people to be completely unsupervised because that's when you can do, you know, a few more interesting things. I think kids are far too supervised now. That's just far too checking in with their parents all the time. And parents are checking in with their kids all the time. I find that extremely disturbing. But, well, my stepmom was my stepmom really for like a second because she was only married to my dad for like six months, I think. I mean, they were together for maybe a year or two, which was, you know, remains my favorite stepmom. But, (laughs) you know, so my parents were basically separated before I was born. So I was raised by my grandparents. And my grandparents being grandparents, they were rather hands-off and not knowing what I was up to. And I had so many identities at home and I was a different person. I was like a straight-A student with completely placid, boring In the film, too, I have a placid, boring exterior. But inside, I was roiling with ideas and ambitions and just completely restless, just eager to get the hell out. I want to hear about what were your identities? Okay, so we had one, the straight-A student. Well, yeah, on the outside, you know, like, and then inside, you know, you just want to be this, you're a zine maker. Mm -hmm. You imagine, like, great futures for yourself. You're writing all these scripts. You're an experimental filmmaker. You have these friends that are kind of like, you know, it's kind of like the savage detectives. I mean, really, Shirkus is kind of my savage detectives. You know, Robert Bolaño's Savage Detectives, it was me and my friends banding together and doing something in a place where nothing was going on and giving yourself, there was no name to our movement. It was completely inchoate, I guess. Mm-hmm. And it was just, we were, I guess, a movement that was unnamed, I guess, or something. And it was just a bunch of us. And it was a very small group of us. And we tried to expand that group, for example. I'll tell the story that, so it was me, Jasmine, a friend named Ben, who's also in the film, who's a musician, and then another friend, Julian. So it was like 
a very small core of us who are interested in the things we're interested in and, you know, obsessed with research magazine, which we discovered in some secondhand bookstore and we're like exchanging, like as if it was contraband of the most, some kind of special, I don't know, religious totem. Anyway, so we were trying to expand our group and we loved the idea of these kind of little groups of people trying to do something like the beats. Well, I would have loved Savage Detectives had I read it then. And like, so Julian in our group was, and Ben, I guess, they were kind of interested in the beats. And On the Road, strangely enough, was mm-hmm. a banned book. You just could not get it in Singapore. But however, I think the Dharma Bums was not, strangely enough. So it was in the library, the National Library, where, you know, kids were allowed to enter and freely borrow books sometimes. And um, my friend Julian, he wrote underneath the flap of this book, the Dharma Bums in pencil because he was, he was a good boy. He said, would you like to join, anyone who likes to join the Mickey Mouse Dharma Bums Club, please call. And he put his own number there in pencil. And then he waited. Mm-hmm. And he waited. This is pre-internet. You know, you had to find your own tribe physically. I mean, you had to search for these people. So he waited and waited and waited. And then weeks later, he got a phone call. I mean, his mom got a phone call. And then it's like, Julian, this is a call for you. This is some strange guy on the phone. And um, Julian went to the phone and there was a strange English guy on the phone. And it was like, I would like to join the Mickey Mouse <laughs> Club. Julian was like, wait a minute, is this Ben? So it's like the same bunch of people. Like, we're just like, we're trying to expand our tribe and it's the same four of us. You know, so, and that's the reason I did the Exploding Cat and just to... The Exploding I, Cat, we should mention, is Yeah, the, the, is my the zine, zine yeah. and which eventually got picked up by an American zine Bible, which is the listings. It was like the pre-internet, I guess, the directory of all the zines in the world. And they liked The Exploding Cat and then wrote about it. And then I started having exchanges and fan letters and, you know, people making zines in Paris, like Situationists was sending me their zines from Paris. <laughs> and, so wow. and like people in Tokyo and people in Iceland, like I spent high school just exchanging zines. It was called Mail Art at that point. M-A-I-L Art. And that was how I discovered the world. And that was how, that was the pre-internet internet, you know, and this is all like DIY stuff. And mm-hmm. I really hanker for those times sometimes. You are listening to the LARB Radio Hour, recorded at Emerson College in the heart of Hollywood. You've been listening to a conversation with Sandy Tan, director of Shirkers. We will return to that conversation in just a moment, but first, we have this week's book recommendation. We're excited to have Dan Lopez, author of The Show House, in the studio today to give us this week's book recommendation. So, Dan... What book are you recommending? Hi, Rick. Happy to be here. Today I'll be recommending the new Haruki Murakami book, Killing Commendatore. Okay, so what is this one about? Uh, like all his other books, it is <laughs> about a... This guy is 36, which is also my age, so it feels very personal. Mm. Um, it's about a guy, single guy, who lives a normal life, very isolated, likes to do his laundry, cook. He's a painter, so he paints. And then, of course finds some mysterious hole in the ground that leads him into a surrealist world that has very high sort of undefined stakes for a young girl. So that mm. I, I described literally every... Every more book. Oh, yeah. Um, but, you know, if the formula works, why break from it? It's a fascinating read. I'm almost done with it. I'm like less than 100 pages from the end, and it's really sucked me in, and I cannot get enough of it. I always just want to go and dive into that world. Well, um, so let's yeah. talk about that. What is it that you like about the world that he creates in fiction? I love that he just creates a space in which the ordinary, like the quotidian just 
boring stuff of your life is butted up right against these fascinating metaphysical realities that mm. only the one person, like on the one hand, I've been thinking a lot about unreliable narrators. Mm. Um, on the one hand, you could say every Murakami character is like some sort of schizophrenic or something and is unreliable <laughs> narrator, but you don't get that sense. You get the sense that he's inhabiting a world in which there are really big stakes right below the surface that most people don't see mm. and that his characters take the time to get in touch with that other world and explore it and are all often the heroes of that world, but not without often sacrificing a great thing. But it's all beli- below the surface, which I like. It's like a Marvel movie without all the CGI, I Ooh, guess. Oh, I like is that. What I, I like what that. I like about Haruki Murakami. Um, and this new one is no exception. It's fantastic. I've been really enjoying it. I think everyone should go out and read it. All right. Can you give us the title and author one more time? Absolutely. Haruki Murakami, Killing Commendatore. Thank you so much. We've been speaking with Dan Lopez, author of The Show House. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. You are listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We now return to our conversation with Sandy Tan, director of Shirkers. I mean, I think it's a thing of being a young person and just slowly kind of gaining access to the world, whatever it takes, whatever mm-hmm. form it takes. It's just, and then suddenly being a part of this kind of network, feeling yourself yeah. suddenly a part of this both very small but also broad network of people mm-hmm. in history before you and after. I mean, that's kind of the awakening of an artist. Yeah. You know, I, and I think um, even though in Singapore it sounds like it's different, it's, it's so broadly relatable to. Yeah. Um, it is. Yeah, and and um, I guess, so there's so much, the film is so fascinating because there's so many different things in it, that, especially that I relate to as someone who is trying to be out in the world as a teenager. But I guess I don't want to give too short shift to the film itself mm-hmm. because um, the look of the film, the style and aesthetic is, is so captivating. <laughs> and um, I guess now you're talking about this kind of history that you got into. I was wondering what were some... When I look at the film, it seems very stylized to me mm-hmm. in a way that yeah. lots of other movies, kind of underground films at that time were in that I would mm-hmm. see it and understand it as a part of a, a lineage of film. Um, I'm wondering if you were aware of that at the time in terms of making the look of it and yeah, what some of so. precursors were for it. And and I'm also wondering what it was like. You, you say that you never saw the footage until 20 years after yeah so i was wondering when it, when you finally saw what it looked like what what that experience was like i mean how you'd remembered the time in your head versus yeah actually seeing it yeah back then i mean we were very cognizant of what was going on in american independent cinema even watching fuzzy tapes or watching projected movies or actually seeing them maybe in the states or something i was very in love with the movies of the coen brothers we wanted some of the aspects of john waters palette um, and Tim Burton's palette, certainly, and um, Edward Scissorhands and, and um, Beetlejuice. And then, we, you know, I like the primary colors of Heathers. And then George himself, who was obsessed with, um, you know, Robbie Mueller's work on Paris, Texas, which is, again, like having seen it more recently in the new Criterion Blu-ray of, of Paris, Texas, I, I realized how steeped in primary colors it was as a movie and how, you know, George was trying to get that into Shirkers as well as as well as I was coming from the direction of Tim Burton and Heathers. He was coming from the direction of Robbie Mueller and we met in the middle. That was Shirkers. And so and he was he was obsessed with Nestor Almendros, the DP 
the famous, um, you know, Latin American DP who shot um, Days of Heaven mm. um, and a, a bunch of the French New Wave films as well. We were paying tribute to a bunch of our heroes, I guess, with the way it looked. So I remember we, we did all this. I remember what it looked like because I remember what, how the pains we went through to shoot at magic hour every day because the light was so harsh on the equator that the only time you could shoot exterior shots was during magic hour um, every day and you had to wait for it. And in Singapore, it, magic hour was not an hour. It was only 15 minutes. <laughs> so this was extremely long and arduous shoot um, in very mosquito-laden places outdoors. But that's the way you can make a film look nice and not crappy because if you shot just randomly in Singapore in the harsh light on 16 you can use the best film stock and the best DP and it's still going to look like crap mm -hmm. this is the the truth of the tropics so I remember that the pains we went through and and all the locations and you know the largest dog in the country that we had in the film and all these spectacular locations that we painstakingly chose I deliberately made sure that it was a curated vision of Singapore where not a single skyscraper was was seen not a single kind of landmark that people would recognize would be seen because we're trying to create a new mythology for the place, or at least I was. Mm. Um, so so I remember all this. And so when I saw the footage, I mean, I was very, I was vindicated. For years, I had to stop talking about this. Otherwise, because um, there's no proof that it ever existed. And it was, it was as if like you just grandstand. I was just like making up stories or just exaggerating and just no one's going to believe you. And you learn to shut up about this kind of stuff. And so when I saw it, it was in Burbank when I saw it. I was, um, you know, working. We had digitized the footage and I was sitting next to a colorist and we're just looking at the footage. And this is a guy who had worked on the Criterion Blu-ray of um, Douglas Sirk movies. So he is used to seeing very nice footage in very nice colors. And his jaw dropped. I mean, I actually, actually specifically chose this place and this one guy because I did my research and this was the place that did a lot of the Criterion Blu-rays and I wanted the people who knew something about color who worked on the Wes Anderson films and the Douglas Sirk movies and I thought these people would be good for Shirkers. So we worked on the dailies in this lab at, I mean this this um, post house in, in Burbank and um, so so his jaw dropped and I thought this you know that, that was the first inkling I had that we had something that was greater than something that would just appeal to me as a sense of closure or my friends. It was the story behind it he thought was stranger than fiction and the footage he thought was remarkable. Yeah. So just um, before you get, before we talk a little bit about <clears throat> how you came to make this documentary. Mm -hmm. So you film the movie and I want to talk a little bit about what happens sort of in the middle of that, yeah. right? Before you <laughs> can have the opportunity to actually see the mm -hmm. footage. You're waiting, you, you go back to college. You're, you and your friends are all waiting for this footage to come back, to edit, to essentially finish this thing and nothing. What happens then? You know, by then, teenage flare-ups and, I mean, George certainly knew how to play us. So by that point, we weren't really, yet split us up. So we were no longer a united force, you know, searching for him and... How did he split you up? You know, through mind games and alliances. So and, you took, so some of well, you took George's side yeah, and some and of you were against Exactly, him. because Sophie and Jasmine just thought, you know, they were adamant that we should have waited a year and shot the film the next summer for all everything to be perfect. And me and George, we just thought, you know, nothing will ever be perfect once you have the crew around you and, or you know, you just have to grab and go. You just have to seize the moment. And I still stand by that. And we still fight over this, I mean, to this very day. So when, 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 when the footage didn't come back and, you know, we were off at college and we, you know, tried to look for him and just we were, we were stonewalled and... It was it was so much more complicated than the you know the truth is so much more more complicated because essentially it's so it's so hard to to explain how hard it is to look for somebody or to make them want to 
respond to you in the age before the internet, but also in a place where basically when you're a kid, um, you have no agency and nobody's going to really believe you and nobody's going to be on your side. And because we had done this as kids with no grown-up supervision, we didn't have backup. We didn't have lawyers. We didn't have parents. We didn't have, you know, people to help us who had witnessed this thing and, and to kind of be on our side and advocate on our behalf. So it was just us, um, our word against his, basically. And and everybody who worked in the film knew that, you know, we had done all this work and he had run off with us and it wasn't for his, him to do. But, you know, you, after a while, the heartbreak and the just the exhaustion of having to pursue somebody who's not giving, you know, like who's not showing up and who's not responding just, you know, just becomes so heartbreaking that you don't want to keep, you don't want it to kind of ruin and taint your life because it tainted my life for a long time. Mm-hmm. And it just, you know, you, you, just, you just have to go back and, and just try to do something else. So, yeah, so you... You reached out to George and he he liter- he disappeared. You never had contact with him after you you made this film and had this intense friendship and Well, I mean, you know, it's it's much more complicated than that okay. because he would be like stonewalling once for a while, you know, like sending us tapes and saying, Yeah, I'll come and it's like just just a lot of stalling and then eventually it just peters out, you know, because you give up. Because I mean it sounds crazy now that you would give up on something like this, you know, when like one year goes by and then and then it's 15 months and then it's two years. I mean, how long do you want to have your life consumed by this thing when you're a 20-year-old kid in college and you have everything else that's happening around you and, and new friends and whatnot? And you just, you know, how long do you want this thing to be haunting and tugging at you? And, and, no one, and you know that he's not going to relent. So how long do you want to kind of be, you know, banging your head against the wall and breaking your heart? at every point. I mean, it's just, you know, a lot of people turn us against us and say that we were weak and that, you know, I mean, there's a lot of victim blaming in this world, right? They, they, they say it's, it's our fault for not having chased them harder. But like, this is a complete misunderstanding of what it felt like to be going through this emotionally at 20 when you have this, this large thing, this, this huge part of your life be taken away and, and be left with a black hole. I mean, to call us, you know, incompetent or, or just irresponsible for not having pursued him. I don't know. I just find that extremely frustrating and just completely typical of the situation where where people um, are blaming the victims. Yeah, I think it must also have been very puzzling, you know, just I could see that now, you know, in hindsight, looking back on who who George was, I think there's an interesting play in the film kind of where you see him both through your younger eyes and now with more complexity, like that he was a very strange figure and that what he did is kind of unexplainable. So it, it, it's so bizarre just to completely disappear like that. It, it's hard for someone that young to even understand, I would I would think. Yeah, I mean, the thing is, I was very attuned to his more um, bizarre behaviors. And I was actually, one of the reasons why we were friends, I think, was I thought of him as a great fictional character, a man who was kind of made up of fictions. And I, I didn't mind that. I mean, I did not mind that at all. I thought it was pretty mature. But this was aberrant. I mean, this was not expected that that somebody would kind of be your best friend and vanish with your biggest project. You're actually your co-baby. You know, like you're, you, you're something you, you created together. And why would he, he do that? And because it's... So that... It was baffling on one level, but because he was a very strange guy, it did not surprise me. It just disappointed and enraged me. But there was no surprise. So this documentary seems like an attempt to finally, in some sense, make 
make sense of something that you could not explain for such a long time. Yeah. How did you go about putting something like that together? <laughs> this would take another hour. Um, yeah. But um, yeah, I mean, um, you know, it's it's a lot of, um, I mean, a lot of it was sleuthing. A lot of it was was me solving this, essentially puzzling out this large jigsaw puzzle of my life and just putting the pieces together and, and realizing patterns and seeing things that I hadn't seen before um, as a grown-up and realizing that this was a man. I mean, I knew he was a, a kind of a, a self-made composite of a lot of fictional identities. So for example, like he is, he was obsessed with a lot of movie characters and considered them part of him. And they, he kind of absorbed their DNA into, he was like, I don't know, like, like, um, I don't know, he, he, I don't know, there's a superhero who does that kind of thing where he absorbs different aspects of things and fuses them into one. And he was that fusion of a lot of um, un- slightly unsavory characters from from French movies, like, for example, um, the hero of Claire's Knee, uh, Eric Roma's Claire's Knee, who he, he, you know, who's played by Jean-Claude Brialy, who played a middle-aged man who, who kind of meddles with a bunch of 16-year-old girls and whose ambition was to touch the knee of Claire, one of the 16-year-old girls, and just messing up their friendships and just, you know, messing up their lives. Um, and George modeled himself after this character. Like, this was one of his heroes. It's startling when you think about it because when when I finally watched Claire's knee and I, I was like, oh my God. Like, all the clues were before our eyes. I mean, and then there was something else in the film that, you know, I didn't have time for, which is that one of the the, the, the class projects, one of the, before Shirkers, we made a short film as a class. And um, George was like leaving all these clues for us. Like, so the name of the short film that we did, which was a, you know, not very ambitious little film, was just basically to get us acquainted with a 16 millimeter camera and just how a set worked. He named the film, I Have Never Told the Truth. Oh. Yeah, jaw drop. I mean, it's it's like, it's, it's you know, it's, it's all this kind of stuff. And then, so, so in terms of how I put it together, um, stuff like that could not make the cut just because there was so much stuff. And when you think about structure and structuring, basically alluring mystery, I guess, or trying to to have, you know, things flow along and, and just be relatively brisk about things and never, you know, and not letting him hijack the film a second time. So you don't want to to dwell on George for the entirety of this film, even though he's a very fascinating character and probably hasn't I probably haven't enough material on George for an entire series. You know, I just I just we just had to be so careful about how to to distribute the information and how you know, in, in in any kind of compelling mystery, you are kind of like revealing bit by bit. And part of the pleasure of filmmaking is, is is is, you know, discovering, building this puzzle, or, mm-hmm. or solving this puzzle by yourself. I have to say that even though George is fascinating to me, that the film that you made was was even more fascinating. And, oh, great. And, and, and so and so the film you just made and the film you made twenty yeah. years ago, um, just. So beautiful, just so beautiful. Just when you talk about the colors, it's really something that that everyone should see. So yeah, and yeah. it's it's really a testament to George. I mean, that's why he's not. I don't villainize him. He's not a villain. He's my nemesis, but he's not a villain. And there is mm-hmm. a difference. There's a crucial difference, as your literate listeners would understand. But but so so I I you know I I think he's he's really he was really talented, and this film kind of shows that he was. And yeah. what a pity. Yeah. 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 And we should say that if people watch the documentary or when people watch the documentary, they'll be able to see clips of Shirkers, the original film that you made, within this documentary because you do you do eventually get the footage back. We won't say how and when, yeah. but the documentary is a chance to finally sort of see it and experience the movie itself. Yeah, yeah. and I think, um, you know, in some ways it's living its best life in this film because it's um, putting it in context and, yeah. 
Thank you so much, Sandy, for coming today. And talking Thank to you. Us. Thank you. I wish we had more time. This was really fun. Yeah. Thank you, Sandy. You've been listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Subscribe to our podcast in iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. If you like the show, leave us a comment and tell us what you think. The LARB Radio Hour's executive producers are Eric Newman, Medea Ocher, and Kate Wolf. Our engineer is William Broughton. Production assistance is provided by William Broughton, Eleanor Duke, Lauren Kinney, and Jake Levins. Our theme song is by composer Imogen Teasley. Special thanks to Alan Minsky, who is no one's moral conscience, for production assistance, and to Emerson College for the use of their studio in Hollywood. Tom Lutz is the publisher and editor-in-chief of the Los Angeles Review of Books. 